out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. As you know, we love our indie pop. This week, it's going to be the turn, our special guest, because you know we love a special guest. This is uh, the Thompson Twins, because I recently caught up with Tom Bailey, who was back in France at that particular time to find out more about his musical career, the band, love, life, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. And after quite a bit of chat about this and that, we were talking about those early years of the band, because they formed in 1977 and were on John Peel and were part of that whole indie world before becoming, um, yes, mainstream pop stars appearing on top of the pops. Anyway, um, once we started talking about that, this was Tom's response. Tom, it's over to you. Yes, I mean, the, you, you were right. That's kind of how it went in the early days. But um, in, in fact, I, I don't know how come we were lucky enough to kind of realize that that's what we had to do. But um, we'd done the, the five years, if you like, of kind of student gigs and squashing. Um But we were essentially an experimental band. We were always trying out new things, you know. And one of the things that we decided to try out was kind of much more direct pop music. And that's what got got us on top of the pop. So, like, in in a way, for us at the time, we didn't realize we were making a massive career move. We were just doing the next experiment. Yes. Um, so, uh, it, it was almost a kind of naive and innocent thing, you know, <laughs> although I can see why people might have thought that we were making some kind of marketing move or something. It really was done... You know, very consciously, we knew that that's what we wanted to do, but the motivation for it wasn't to, I don't know, it wasn't, wasn't really to achieve the effect we did. Although, yes. thinking back, I remember there were, there were lots of conversations between the three of us about how you, in, in a way that, that to be a pop group meant that you had to have chart success. You know, you had to be on top of the pots and those kind of things. Yes. So it helped to kind of uh, focus what we did at that stage. Yeah, because you're... I was going to say you're... There have been several moments in our careers where, where, you know, ideas like that came to the fore and we suddenly went, oh, that means we've got to do this, this, and this. And so it's, sometimes it's really helpful to have a glimpse of the future. Yes. Well, it was quite interesting because I suppose it got very... Um... God, that's quite noisy there. Are you near a road? No, no, I'm in a very, very peaceful French village. <laughs> <laughs> There's just that sounds like a bit of a wind. But no, it was just the fact that, um, you know, with your early singles that John Peel played from that very first album, um, yes, uh, Squares and Triangles, and then She's in Love with Mystery, it had a very sort of post-punk indie sound to it, didn't it? Even though that was kind of the late 70s, more than the mid-80s. Yes. Yes, it did. I mean, we were we were responding to the the stylistic context and the environment of the time. Um, and also, the other thing is, and I'll, I'll come to, to, to this again later on, but we were a, a band of musicians, and when you write for a band of musicians, there has to be a part for everyone to play. And it just so happened that we were a conventional, at that stage, we were a conventional two guitars, bass, drums, outfits. Uh, and so, surprise, surprise, the sound ended, ended up being like that. Yes. It was only later when we kind of got into technology we realised we should write for the production, for the song, for the record, and not for the band. 
Yes. Because it's, I suppose, did you feel, because, you know, obviously at the time and now looking back, you know, it's, it's like, um, I suppose it's almost two different things. But because the social and political time was so divided, wasn't there? And you had to be in one camp or the other camp. You know, one was the sort of red wedge, very political and angsty. And the other one was kind of going for the sort of whole Duran Duran, big yacht, big hair um, on top of the pops. Did you feel a little bit torn between those two, having sort of been part of a more of a sort of punky, squat, indie life, you know, having that period beforehand? Well, well I think we probably felt we could do both, you know, and, and we were very, very political. I mean, the, 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 mo- the political motivation was, um, you know, a daily reality for us. We, we weren't in there just to kind of become pinups or something. It was, it was about changing the world for a better place, and 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 I still think that that's one of rock and roll's kind of general tasks. And if it fails at that, then it stops being rock and roll for me, <laughs> because there has to be some some ingredient of a kind of necessary optimism about the future and a rebelliousness to get to that point. Otherwise, it's just entertainment, isn't it? So. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. The kind of political motivation was a massive thing for us. Yeah. And still, still is. Well, I, I know, because cause having sort of done a lot of these interviews, I sort of realised this kind of the five-year narrative that bands getting together and they, they make a sound and, and initially they're just, they're just playing in front of their friends and family and anybody they can kind of emotionally blackmail to go and see them. And it's often the John Peel play and then a John Peel session that gave, gave a lot of people the chance to play that kind of sort of circuit, which is quite small, but, you know, like the art centre circuits and stuff like that, like Norwich had the art centre and then there's Leeds, Glasgow, Manchester, Leeds, um, Liverpool. So you can get, you know, in front of 100, 200 people who don't really know you or are related to you, which is kind of big. And then that sort of kind of gives people that album and then a potential tour. And and then, you know, the second album and anybody who's ever done America seems to come back kind of emotionally crippled. So how did your kind of, once you'd sort of got over that initial kind of indie world and then you started having more success, how did the rest of the 80s kind of develop for you because it's it seems like a bit of a minefield dealing with the music industry well sure i mean there's all sorts of potential <laughs> points of stumbling there but i mean in a way we were lucky because once it kind of kicked off for us then you get carried along on the momentum of the first you know hit and all the rest of it and there is a momentum this is there's no question i i think in the i mean just to fast forward that the way of surviving all that is to realize that you can't can't just live your life, life as if it's one long party <laughs> because something's bound to go terribly wrong and so you ha- you have to have one eye on your own kind of self preservation and i think we were pretty good at that um, so in other words the music business and show business if you like which is a horrible kind of term, but the kind of thing I don't like about all of it. Yes. Um, it can take you down a certain route that you either go willingly or you kind of have. You, you know, you keep one eye on that and think, you know, I don't really want you to become just an entertainer. There's, there's something more going on than that. So, uh, you know, to preserve the artistic and political, as you mentioned, agendas, for us personally, was always a very important thing. Yes. And whether that was clearly visible from the outside, I've no idea. But, you know, you're asking about how we deal with the motivation to keep going and survive it all. 
and that's that's the answer. You know, we we were clear about what we wanted to do personally. Yes, because then because because obviously there's kind of the moments where you know you you not only got the business, but you're also trying to create while at the same time dealing with the dynamic of the band. So that's kind of a triple whammy of kind of fun, which, you know, when you're in your 20s, it's probably a little bit harder to deal with, especially with kind of outside influences. So because by the mid 80s, things were difficult with your, you know, on the health front as well, wasn't it? So that was another kind of thing that was a curveball in your, you know, career. Well, yeah, you never get a completely straight run. Of course, if, you know, the longer your career lasts in the public eye, the more likely there is something to go wrong. Because things go wrong in life, and so, but I mean that. Looking back, that was no particular big deal. However, I do remember thinking, you know what? This doesn't last forever. There is a kind of natural life cycle for a pop group, and you shouldn't wait until you've crash landed to realise that. In a way, there's a way of more kind of gracefully landing and doing something else, and that's what happened really. When Joe left, and then Alana and I decided to kind of shift direction. Um, still being signed to a major label was a kind of it was a difficult argument to present. But we said, you know, we don't want to just carry on doing the same old thing. Well, we've always thrived on experimentation. Let's do another thing. And so, you know, the Thompson Twins became more and more and more reluctant to play to the charts. And even that didn't work for us. So we, you know, we, the last two albums we worked together, we became Babel, which was a different thing altogether. And um, I think that was just a, a kind of need to express a need for more change, more experimentation. Yes. And when of course, you, it, killed, when it killed our commerciality stone dead. <laughs> yes. Well, it's quite, it's quite amazing because I was, you know, my, I suppose my first love and obsession was David Bowie and, and sort of, you know, you, you know, your first love is always your first love, isn't it? So I sort of stuck with him throughout, you know, his career, um, you know, through all the sort of you know, the 80s, 90s and beyond. And um, it was not, not always a sort of easy journey because he had to sort of, you know, he changed direction quite a lot as well and, and sort of realised he was doing things which were going to be commercially um, difficult. So did you, you know, as an artist, is that a similar, when you look at people like that thinking, my God, yeah, you do have to go and do your low album, which kind of is going to annoy people, but then eventually people will say that was a bit of genius, but at the time will think you're, you're, you're commercial su- su- and creative suicide, really. Well, yeah, well, I, I, absolutely. You're absolutely right on that. And, and I often quote Bowie as being the great example of how a true experimentalist who can also appeal to the mainstream necessarily goes underground from time to time. So it seemed to me, if you look at Barry's career as a whole, every third album was massively successful. And there were, and there were two in between that were kind of, oh, what's he doing now? And, uh, but, but as you say, I mean, Lowe is a, is a, is a total work of genius. At yes. the time, not everyone realized it. But, but, I mean, thank goodness he was, you know, he had the courage of his convictions. Or the inability, you might say, to just, keep on the straight scenario. He had to go out of his set from time to time and try out new things. Yes, and I've noticed that you you also, you know, you haven't just stuck in your town, village, whatever, with the same lineup. You know, you also have relocated and moved about and had a lot of experiences. And as has has all that been kind of necessary to sort of continue to keep your sort of musical kind of passion? Well, I don't know. I mean, the fact is I've led a very complicated life with all sorts of 
kind of projects going on within it. And so I like to think that they all in, inform and enrich each other, all these different things that I do in different places that I do them in. But it also waters it down, you know, so I can't claim the, the kind of momentum of a single-minded project. It's not like that for me. I do all sorts of weird things and try and fit them around each other or kind of cross-fertilize them together. And the results are less controllable in the way, you know. Um, sometimes you think, oh, it must be nice to just kind of be in the place that you grew up with the gut, you know, the guys in the same, the same guys in the band that you formed when you were 16 or something. But then on the other hand, how boring, you know. <laughs> more to the world than that. And um, I've been lucky enough to, to have, you know, very adventurous life it's, 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 there's no question about that so um, it is what it is and I think my art has to reflect that to some yes are you amazed that you've managed to survive so so kind of well and in, in sort of one piece because cause, you know there has been a lot that has happened and, and a lot of dynamics and you know different musical projects as well as other social projects so I just I just kind of look in thinking god you know you, you did sort of you did push the boundaries you know I just wondered if you would be able to recognise your 18 you know your 18 year old self if they saw you now would be going my god what the heck would be dreading the future. Well, you know, I've seen a kind of continuity looking back, uh, and I, I can't say that it was planned that way, but it's, it's easy to see that, you know, for example, even in, in the kind of hit single days of the Thompson Twins, I was including little Indian music references that subsequently flourished in, an, in a project that, no, you know, not many people have heard of, the, the Hollywater project, and it? That, to me, is just a sign that the seeds were already there, you know. It's just that I hadn't nourished them to the point where they would sprout fully. And you, you see examples like that all over the place. Yes. But it really is, it's not, you know, I don't have kind of a, uh, strategic planning meetings with myself. <laughs> <laughs> it happens because it happens, you know. And um, I, I think I'm always drawn to what the creative challenge is. And sometimes you have to go, again, as we were talking about with, with, with Bowie's example, you have to go out of your depth, you know, and say, well, it wouldn't be the easiest thing to do, but we have to do this because that's where the creative challenge has arisen, and that's what's staring me in the face, right? Yes. So, yeah. And that it includes, for example, coming back and doing pop music again, which I'd stayed away from for a long time, so long that it had become not my comfort zone to be in positive. So suddenly it became like an interesting challenge again. Can you do that? Is it valid? What will you learn from going and looking back at what you did in the past? Yes. And then adding something to it. So all of these things become vital and interesting given the space and the context and the variety of other challenges are in it. So, you know, like I say, I haven't really planned it that way. <laughs> you know, because obviously, you know, there's kind of a lot of these kind of uh, festivals that are happening now. There's one in next month, which is called Shine, which is going to be at some holiday camp, mostly sort of indie bands from the 80s and the 90s who are slightly reforming or never, never sort of finished. But, you know, they just kind of realised as, as a package. And obviously, you know, the package thing has been quite popular and for various reasons... 
I mean, revisiting those kind of um, those times and also bumping into all these kind of old characters like some school reunion from 30, 40 years ago. How does that kind of sit and feel? Because obviously, you know, there's, there's things that you might have been able to bury and then you think, oh, no, they're going to have to be right in my face. I might have to talk to that person or deal with the right. situation. And <laughs> in fact, it's, it's usually a charming pleasure to meet these characters from, from back in the day and um, we all get on very well and uh, I, I don't think there's been any um, I don't think there's been any backstage squabbles that I can think of yes. I mean as, as regards these kind of 80s festivals and stuff I think what happened was that the, the kind of grand traditional rock festivals of the English countryside were ignoring the 80s so in some weird way the 80s had to come up with its own solution to that problem and so you know, the rewinds and the let's rock things, um, I guess, moved in to fill that gap. And they've been enormously successful. I mean, uh, rewind, this is, is an enormous thing. I think we played to 40,000 people in Henley, you know, just, <laughs> just up the Thames. And um, the thing that astonishes me is that until we played it, I had no idea it even existed. You know, it's not like it, it doesn't uh, have... Uh, it doesn't demand respect within the mainstream consciousness, something like that. It's just 80s fans going in in such numbers that it creates this big, big fan. So it, it, it's, um, it's a thing of its own, I think. Yes. I, th- I suppose, in a way, the festival thing had grown up. I mean, simplistically, it was the sort of Monterey, the Woodstock kind of world, and then you had Glastonbury and various other festivals, but they, they were sort of representing not just music, it was the whole counterculture and the sort of an alternative society. So I suppose with a, a lot of those 80s bands, not all of them, but some of them, you know, they, they didn't really have that kind of ethos that went back to Woodstock and three days of sort of sun fun and you know lots of drugs did they but you you know you did also play glastonbury festival in the mid 80s as well as as well as live aid in the american side of the the uh the sort of that that weekend so obviously yeah i I suppose you know michael evers at glastonbury wasn't going to certainly try and put spandau ballet or abc on on the glastonbury stage it was going to be as what elvis costello billy bragg wasn't it so you know there, there was kind of culturally you know they were two different worlds even though they still were in the music business so to speak well i did grow up you know being a part of that festival culture in the uk and you, you're right did play glastonbury on the same day actually as playing the stonehenge festival which was even more remotely uh, <laughs> counterculture i have to say and uh, those things were great um you're right though that, that something was lost in the 80s where it became too glamorous to be concerned with counterculture and I, I'm almost biting my lip as I said that because I also think that the, the 80s was the last time when that sense of optimism about the future was was kind of general currency in people's minds everyone believed that you know look at look at live aid that only happened because we believed the world could be better and that music could that rock and roll could step forward to make a difference now I think in the last couple of decades, we've lost that sense, or at least rock and roll has lost the right to claim that it that it can change things for the better, because it's been it's been kind of captured by by the marketeers. You know? Rock and roll is no longer the the uncontainable rebellious <laughs> beast that it was. 
and, and, and I can pop music as part of that. You know, it's, it's kind of lost its, it's, it's lost one leg of its kind of raison d'etre. It, it, it doesn't exist to change, it exists now to make people famous, which is a different thing. Yes, actually, that is, that is a very wise thing you just said, because I realise, having done this, these interviews, that most people who are in those bands, and I suppose we're talking about the late 70s and 80s, most of them spent a couple of years unemployed or being on the job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance scheme, which seemed to be a big thing. But having two years where you could just focus 100% on making music then getting that John Peel play, then doing that kind of circuit of kind of little gigs and, and playing Stonehenge, you know, made me smile, thinking that you were probably there with lots of Hells Angels and Hawkwind and lots of naked hippies, you know, screaming. You're absolutely right. I think, I think we played before Hawkwind, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably was quite a different audience than when you were there on Top of the Pops being introduced by, you know, Dave Lee Travis, which looked all rather, you know, with lots of balloons. You know, it was quite a different vibe, I would imagine. Yeah. Completely, yeah. And, and you kind of know that you're... I mean, sometimes there's a sensation that you're going behind enemy lines, okay? <laughs> that you're not just playing to your own crowd, but you've gone to a crowd that doesn't really know where you're coming from, and yet somehow you've got to go in there, convince them that, that what you're doing is valid and enjoyable at the same time. So there is a degree of that. Um, and... You know, there have been occasions where you wince thinking, am I doing the right thing here? Is this too cheesy? Is this too mainstream? Um, but I think, you know, as soon as you go on TV and most radio, for example, you're facing that. But the the quid pro quo is that you're suddenly communicating with vast numbers of people and therefore the sense of responsibility about it um, emerges and amplifies. And I think that's what a lot of artists want to do. They want to communicate en masse, especially pop artists. That's almost, by definition, what they want to do. Yes. Which is, which is great. And in a way, you know, I can see, and, and this has happened obviously with Brian Epstein when he saw the Beatles, thought, well, you're okay, but you're not amazing. But, you know, you could, you could definitely improve if we sort of send you to Hamburg, play two nights, two gigs a night, you know, really learn your work. You know, playing probably in front of, you know, Hell's Angels at, at, at um, Stonehenge probably tightens your game up than, than, trying to be, than trying to be on the X Factor, you know. It was uh, character-building stuff. <laughs> it's well, funny but you're absolutely right I mean I've just come off a long US tour where we were playing you know five gigs a week for, for three months and I tell you what by the end of it we're ten times as good a band as we were at the beginning because you just become very very confident and slick to the point where interestingly enough you can start taking risks again because you know that you can achieve the thing you set out to do on day one You've proved it to yourself dozens of times. So now you think, okay, how can we make it even better? How can we go out on a limb? How can we test ourselves um, to go to places that we were scared to go to before? So, yeah, the experience of doing things actually improves things. If you, if you look at it like that. Yes. Well, I think, you know, go back to David Bowie. It's always been fascinating looking at his early years, that 60s period where, you know, he'd throw something up and it was like, no, sorry, mate, try again. And then he'd throw something else and it's like, nope, still not working. And then eventually, I don't know, about the fifth, sixth time, it was like, ah, oh, this, this is getting better. You know, Space Odyssey isn't too bad. You know, you can work, you've got something you're working on here. And then eventually with a few more bits and pieces, 
you know, it, it, it clicked with Hunky Dory. But, you know, it did take a long time. And I can see that, you know, with those years, because I, I know from hearing people like Sade talking and Swing Out Sister, you know, most of, you know, most of your gang, though you didn't all live together, were in squats in London trying to make music. And those kind of lyrics that Sade did, you know, when am I going to make a living, based on her experience of being totally broke. And, and it kind of gives it an authenticity that when it does come out and you think you've got the producer, you've got the sound, it, and it's brilliant, you know, and you can play live because if you can play in front of Hell's Angels who look like they're on acid and speed, you probably can play in front of most people. Yes, well, uh, maybe you're right. I mean, certainly I think that what you were just saying about it's good if pop music means something, and you know, if it's about something rather than just... About, I mean, there is a place for the occasional meaningless, good, fun song. But in general, I like it to be actually about something, because then, in a kind of poetic sense, you can trust the voice, um, you, you know, where it, something about where it's coming from and the fact that it's... You know, sometimes when you hear great singers just doing their version of, you know, a song that someone else wrote doesn't quite pay off even though all the ingredients are there the thing that's missing is the trust that you feel that they're speaking the truth and that truth of course comes from experience and knowing knowing why you wrote the song yes and just lastly i mean because just being a bit obsessed with the 80s and that production were you interested or have you been kind of fascinated hearing the David Bowie albums of the 80s, especially Tonight and Never Let Me Down, being remixed or at least taken out the, the sort of 80s production and now it's sounding quite different? Um, okay. um, well, interestingly enough, I was uh, on this tour that I've just done in America that one of the other bands was the B-52s and their drummer was Sterling Campbell, who was in David Bowie's band. So he played me some of the tracks that um, he's on, having a kind of re-recorded um, parts around the, the, the vocal. And I was confused, you know, because it didn't sound like what I was expecting. Um, but, you know, I think Bowie has earned our respect to the level that, we would, that, that kind of any approach to his work is, is potentially a valid one, as long as it's done respectfully. So, and I believe in this case it is done respectfully. Um, however, you know, there are always going to be people who think you can't mess with something like that. and It upsets them for some reason because they're fixated on the way that they first fell in love with it. So that's, that's a constant problem, too. It is. But I believe that, you know, this, in, in the kind of modern and the postmodern world, to have various versions of things is part of our reality. And, and that's why I'm interested in doing remixes and always have been and and so forth. So I, I think it's interesting to hear various takes on the same piece of work. Yes. Well, I, I suppose what, what's quite interesting is that we didn't realise this at the time, that we've, we've grown up with what is pop music from year zero, roughly it's year zero, you know, say the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, I know there's Elvis and Little Richard, but we've, we've, we've been on this earth during that period and there will be, you know, a chapter or a paragraph written, you know, in hundreds of years' times about music. And, and you know, we've been part, you know, we've been here when this has all happened because obviously music is changing again and the way it's kind of being made and the way bands are and the record labels and the fact that, you know, it's all about streaming and there's little money. So it is interesting how it's going to be remembered, really. And I just wondered how you sort of also sort of feel 
you know, like there's, you know, obviously when the first tribute band started, it seemed a bit odd. But now you realise actually, well, that's all that's going to happen, you know, in the way that classical music is going to have, you know, Mozart and Beethoven all dead many years ago. So it's that way of what how music is going to get represented next with tribute bands and also with the stage musical like Meatloaf's um, Bat Out of Hell, the musical that's happened. And I just wondered if you've ever sort of thought about your catalogue of work and how you want to kind of preserve, archive it and use it. Well, interestingly enough, Alana, my ex-partner in the Twins, when, when I perform um, the old Thompson's hit on my own with a new band, she calls it a tribute band. <laughs> so that's a kind of interesting take on things. I don't know. I mean, no one expected pop music to last this long, I suppose, is the first observation. And I think the cultural apparatus around presenting it to the public isn't quite up to the task. That's why, you know, mainstream radio's days are numbered because it simply can't accommodate the number of records being made. And, of course, it has to it has to focus on the younger audience because that's its, its main task. And yet, a lot of the better pop music is being made by the old soldiers who've been, <laughs> been doing it for so long that they get really good at it. So... It's very it's very difficult for me, for example, to walk into uh, to, to the BBC and if they play my record, they say, "Well, why should we?" And that that's something that I think the internet is the only the only medium capable of taking up that that vacuum and filling it. Yes, this is true. Just last question: What would you say to your, you know, having decades of experience? What would you, you know, say to an eighteen-year-old or your eighteen-year-old self? You know, your sort of key things that think, God, I wish I'd known that. That was that couple of bullet points would have just been so useful. Well, what do I always say is that if there's ever a dilemma, if there's ever a fifty-fifty decision, and you don't know what to do, always go with the artistic preference rather than the marketing preference Um, because it may sell less but in the end you'll be happier with it yes wise words and that dear listener is the end of the interview a massive thank you to uh tom bailey for giving me the time for that interview from the thompson twins um if you want to contact me for some interesting reason do on facebook twitter instagram just do at c86 show I will be there, keep it positive. And all these uh, interviews and various other shows have been archived, so you can find those on iTunes, Spotify, and also Podbean. So there you go, that's all I've got to say. Apart from thank you, stay safe, have a great week.